There are two Bible readings today. The first is on page 3, Genesis 2, starting at verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The second reading is on page 1176, Ephesians 5, starting at verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, But I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. It's great to be with you again today. Uh, We're going to be focusing most of our time back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So if you want to flick back there to begin with, there's an outline in the leaflet uh, so you can follow on where we're heading. Uh, Obviously, we're entering into what is quite a contemporary debate when it comes to the issues of marriage, uh, relationships, gender, sexuality, all those sort of issues. So let me pray as we we dive into it, okay? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're a God who speaks to us clearly. Uh, You are the creator God who's made us in his image. And Father, we ask that as we reflect on what that means today, uh, you'll give us understanding about the way we're wired for relationships in this world, and particularly when it comes to our our sexuality and marriage. So, Father, we commend this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We well, all know that Australia has voted and over 
61% of our population who were polled indicated that they were happy for uh, same-sex marriage to be included in the civil definition of marriage here in Australia. Uh, But what you also know is that this is part of a much wider and more complex evolving debate that's been occurring in our culture uh, for decades. We've got the feminism of the 1960s that's uh, morphed into a a gender debate uh, as we've entered into the 20th century, 21st century, and it includes issues to do with uh, uh, transgenderism and identity in in terms of who we are uh, when it comes to the matter of, of gender. Apparently, I'm not a Facebook follower, some of you may well be, but apparently on Facebook you can now choose from up to 50 options of how you'd like to self-describe. All right? gone, of, gone of the days of Mr., you know, Mrs., Miss and Master. You know, like we, we're now in a hugely diverse sort of cultural milieu when it comes to how we think about ourselves. Uh, at a popular level, the debate surrounding Israel Folau has been dominating the press in different ways uh, for, a, for numbers of... Uh, uh, weeks really, and it still, still seems to flow on. But every week, as you look at the press, you see different articles that tap into these sort of questions on a regular sort of basis. Now, before I actually get into Genesis 1 and 2, before we dive into that, what I want to do is to step back for a moment. And when it comes to issues of gender and marriage, I want to think about some of the, the worldview paradigms or ways of thinking that I think have set the, the groundwork for the debate that we've just entered into. I'm going to flash a, a picture of a woman up on a screen here. Um, probably not this woman, I don't think. Um, Rachel Dolazar. This woman, okay. Slightly more contemporary person. Thanks, thanks Shane. Uh, she hit the press in 2015. I don't know if you remember seeing her uh, and the debate around her, but let me give you the background. Uh, a black civil rights activist from the United States And the reason she gained notoriety was because she held herself out as a black woman with African-American heritage. Now, the problem was her parents then came out in the press and explained that actually she wasn't, that they were white with European background and she was their genetic offspring and therefore she had no African-American ancestry at all that she could claim as her own. It set up quite a, uh, a debate. In November 2015, Dolazar was interviewed on television and she said it was actually true. She was born white, but she said she identified at a subjective level as an African-American woman and because she identified herself subjectively as black, it was appropriate to hold herself out as a black person. So that was basically the debate. Now, I don't know if you remember the press that they generated, but there were a whole lot of people who came out in support. Absolutely true. If she sees herself that way, it's no problem for her to project herself publicly with that sort of image. And then there are a whole lot of other people who said, no, 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 come on, let's let's actually have a look at this from a realistic perspective. How, How can you say literally black is white or vice versa? You know, that was the sort of question that emerged out of that debate. It was a significant illustration, I think, of where our culture's up to. Two things, I think, are a key drumbeat or mantras that feed into this sort of evolving debate in our culture. 
I think they're the rise of individualism and the quest for authenticity. Okay, so let me just briefly touch on those uh, because I think it's, it's worthwhile having them in mind as we dive into what the scriptures say. Firstly, uh, the rise of individualism, and it's linked to the rejection of objective truth in this sort of postmodern world. So it's the rejection of the idea that you can know anything objectively. And at the level of who I am, I need to individually work out what's true for me. And external authorities, they can't tell me how I should think about myself. Uh, They can't tell me what I should believe. So those authorities like uh, church or religions or government or family or any other authority figures have no right to do that. I must define my own reality and purpose, right? the rise of individualism. And you see that in all sorts of ways in our culture. Secondly, the quest for authenticity. What we must do today is be true to ourselves. Right? That's absolutely critical. We mustn't conform to um, external moral values that are created for us because to do so would be to undermine our true and unique identity. Personal meaning comes from within and being true to yourself. Uh, those sort of, they're familiar drumbeats that you would have heard and you, you pick up in subtle and not so subtle ways in a constant sort of uh, manner in our society. Now these twin mantras um, mean that when you come to trying to communicate Christian truths, it's quite, quite difficult right? because... If you suggest these things, God created the world, he created us and he has relational authority over everything he's made. Or if you say God has designed an objectively embedded an understanding of gender and marriage in the created order. Or if you say that the Bible actually has authority as the word of God to tell us how we should live and operate then you can see why it's hard for someone who is autonomous and a seeker of authenticity to actually hear that message. It really does jar against the way in which they think. Let me say it's also hard for for believers, those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to actually hold to those things as well because we swim in an ocean of this sort of thinking on an everyday basis. So challenging for people to hear the Christian message, challenging for believers to actually communicate it and to actually hold to it themselves. That's the sort of tension that we find ourselves in. Background. What I'm going to do now is turn to Genesis 1 and 2 and ever so briefly talk about the way in which these chapters speak about gender and marriage. And then I want to tackle... um, what I've called some hot topics, some, some uh, current topics to do with same-sex marriage and gender fluidity that I think are emerging constantly. And I'll be ever so brief as I do with that, so forgive me for being uh, uh, fairly, fairly succinct as we grapple with it. Okay, so uh, Genesis 1 and 2, what does the Bible say about gender and marriage? What, what we see here in these chapters is that God affirms the goodness of everything he has made. As you go through the first chapter, remember the end of each day, you know, it's sort of it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's, and when you get to uh, the creation of humanity, it is very good. 
All right? So there's a goodness about what God has created. That includes the creation of male and female as complementary categories of what it means to be a human being. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then you get to verse 31, the end of this sixth day, and it was very good. All right, that's the clear statement. It's God who creates gender distinctives, but there is a quality built in. That is, men and women are equally in the image of God, but different. Now, let me say that is, uh, for the time when the scriptures were written, that was a radical idea in terms of um, a forerunner of thinking that men and women would be equal. The differences were understood, but their equality was not. And I suspect that's still the same struggle today. But Christianity is the forerunner of this way of thinking. We're not sort of behind the times here. We actually think men and women are equal in the image of God. But there are gender distinctives, and that's backed up by biology, that is, by the way in which God has created things. And there is purpose when it comes to gender. Uh, we saw back in chapter 1 that uh, God creates with a view to men and women both having a responsibility for ruling uh, or subduing, subjecting the create, superintending creation. And also there's a, um, a complementarity that comes to the nature of relationship that's built in uh, to these early chapters as well. And that's not surprising when it comes to the extension of creation or rule in this world, uh, God creates human beings with the capacity to create human beings, uh, new life at that level. And that's part of uh, God's endowment to us to actually be able to ongoingly rule the world and the created order. Right? We all enter the world because of the union between a man and a woman. Also, permanence is intended in terms of this relationship between a man and a woman. Uh, there's that one flesh idea uh, that comes out, particularly in chapter 2 of Genesis, uh, verse 21. woman is uh, taken from the rib of a man. And then um, verse 23 of chapter 2, you hear the man saying, yeah, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Uh, there's unity. And that unity and permanence in marriage is reinforced as you go through the scriptures. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 19 uh, speaks about that quality being embedded in uh, the nature of marriage. So what we have here in these early chapters is if you're summarizing the key elements of marriage, you'd say it's between two people, male and female, proper context for sexual expression and the idea of permanence. And this is God's good design for human flourishing. But of course, the picture is incomplete unless you take into account what happens when you get to Genesis 3 or the fall of uh, humankind. Uh, now, we'll come to Genesis 3 for a couple of weeks starting next week, but I need to touch on it as we get a picture of some of the issues or the debates that we're having when it comes to this question right now. Genesis 3 plots the fall of humanity or the way in which sin enters our world. And essentially, all that means is saying to God, 
I know better than you, and I think I can do a better job of running my life and the world without you. Right? That's at the heart of it, what sin is. It's saying, I want to run things, not you. Right? The rejection of God. And sin, actually, as we look at the unfolding storyline of the Bible, it, it affects or infects every level of humanity and our lives. Um, so when we come to the particular topic we're talking about, both male and female are created in the image of God. That's good. But the problem is every single one of us is infected or disfigured because of sin, because of our rejection of God. And that shows itself in a whole range of different ways. It shows itself at a, a physical level. Uh, we all know the reality that our bodies get sick and they decline. As you age, you're more profoundly aware of the fact that, that that's the case. I've got a friend who's about 15 years older than me. He says these days when he bends over to tie up his shoelaces, he looks for other things to do while he's down there. You know? and, uh, yeah, and you know that that is just the reality as you get old in different ways. There are disabilities. It also affects the question of gender identity. So uh, there are about, there's less than 1% of people who are born with chromosomal confusion, if you like, intersex, uh, gen- gender ambiguity. And I take it that that is a, a product of living in a fractured world that's infected by sin. It doesn't just affect our bodies, though. It affects our thinking or our psychology. Um, we know what it means to suffer with depression or anxiety. Most of us struggle as we go through our lives with issues to do with our own identity. And therefore, it's not surprising for us to see that in our day and age, people will struggle with questions of gender identity. Uh, that, that isn't a surprising thing at all. That is, there's biological clarity in all but bar less than 1% of people, it's clear whether they're male or, or female at that point, but there can be ambiguity when it comes to psychological self-understanding of gender. Um, gender dysphoria is often the category that that's put under. So there's, it affects our bodies, sin, it affects our thinking, it also affects us at the level of our heart or our, our desires. Um, part of our fractured relationship with God is that we don't want what he wants for us. Uh, That is essentially the definition of sin. So let me step back for a moment and say, given what I've said, what does it mean for us to live in a created, good, but fallen world? Created, good, but fallen world. How should we think about the complexities that arise uh, because of that? I want to tap into... um, an analogy that uh, an academic, John White, uses that I think helpfully describes the way we should deal with some of this, uh, the nature of the fracturing of our, our lives and the distance we have from God. White says that human beings, in a sense, are flawed masterpieces of God's creative work. And he uses the analogy of an art restorer to think about what we should do about it. So he says, once you imagine that an art restorer is given the Mona Lisa, all right, the, this woman that came up earlier, she now appears, right? uh, the Mona Lisa, and his job is to restore this old piece of art and 
you know, and deal with it. Now, I want you to imagine that this art restorer, as he's doing this work, thinks, I think I could improve on what the great master has done, right? And so instead, this, right? And he decides that the Mona Lisa would actually look much more impressive with a moustache, okay? And uh, he improves this old work in this way. Now, you intuitively know this is a mistake for an art restorer, right? You know that his job is fundamentally to restore the Mona Lisa back to all its former glory, not add to its uh, characteristics in different ways. Now, what says that he thinks it should be exactly the same when it comes to humanity. We are very good masterpieces, but we are flawed because of sin. But our goal as creations at this point is not to create our own identity and meaning and purpose, right, to put moustaches on ourselves, so to speak, if you like, uh, but rather our given task is to recover all that we were made to be in God's good purpose and to live faithfully for the one who made us. Okay? Now, what I want to do now is ever so briefly tackle a couple of the, the topics that have come up recently in our culture and just to examine them from the point of view of the Bible and interact with what's going on in our culture. I've been really brief on Genesis 1 and 2, I get that, and, uh, and three. Uh, but now I want to try and bring out some of those truths as we consider uh, these issues. And I want to particularly pick up on same-sex marriage and um, gender fluidity, uh, gender dysphoria, if you like. Let's start with uh, same-sex marriage. As I said before, the plebiscite has come through. 61% plus of people voted on uh, this debate, and they are in favour of the definition of marriage, civil definition being extended to include male-male marriages and female-female marriages. Now, I don't know if you remember, you probably do, you will as soon as I bring it up. One of the big slogans that was repeated throughout the campaign is this one, right? Love is love. And uh, that was, I don't know that it added a lot of content to it, uh, but it certainly was one of those emotive slogans that was thrown around a lot uh, throughout the debate. And basically the content attached to this slogan was something like this. It's hateful and it's a product of misguided bigotry and prejudice to stop two people who love each other, no matter what their gender is, from entering into marriage. Or to put it more personally, I love my same-sex partner. Who are you to say I don't or to oppose my right to marry this person? Uh, that's basically the way in which it was framed. Now, can I say, I think Christians were very challenged by this argument. Uh, we do want to be about loving people, don't we? Well, yeah, of course we do. And so in the face of that argument, you were, many people found themselves floundering as to how they respond because it's quite powerful. A couple of thoughts uh, when it comes to this debate. Uh, Firstly, what it illustrated was that Christians don't have a very well-grounded biblical view of marriage, to be quite honest. Um, and particularly in our Western culture, uh, we have been drip-fed a view of marriage that marriage and relationships uh, are founded on a romantic understanding of love. Uh, that's the way in which our culture 
has uh, been you know, pumping for many years, but at least uh, Hollywood has certainly popularised that notion. So as an individual and to be authentic, going back to those drum beats, my feelings for someone, they are paramount. And to not follow those feelings that I have for someone would be totally inauthentic. So therefore, uh, I should be free to do that. Now, I remember uh, this idea coming home really strongly to me in the film Sleepless in Seattle, which many of you will remember, uh, but some of you are too young to remember. Right? It was a film that uh, starred Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, and it was all about this random meeting of two people and then falling in love, and you already know the story. But I remember one line from the film that stuck in my mind where I think it was Meg Ryan uh, saying to Tom Hanks during the film, you know when you're in love, don't you? She said, because when you're walking on, along with your partner and you hold your hands together and your fingers intertwine, right, when you look down, you know you're in love if you can't tell which are his fingers and which are yours. All right? I don't know if you remember that line, if you saw it. It should really stick there as a real key marker for relationships. You want to try it sometime, see if it's still working, you know. And I, I don't know. I thought it told me more about morphology of people than it does about love. But um, that is, if you're six foot six tall and going out with someone who's four foot three, there's likely to be a difference and you're not in love at all. You know, like it, but nonetheless, it actually, it actually captures that romantic Western view of marriage, doesn't it? On this basis, uh, a loving bond between two people of the same gender, of course, is just as real as a loving bond between two heterosexual people. Of course it is, if that's your basis. And it would be unloving to oppose it. And in fact, arrogant of me to suggest someone else shouldn't act on their feelings... See, it's absolutely true when you follow the logic of that thinking or that uh, popular theology through. But can I say, biblical Christianity, uh, to be married, is totally different in terms of its foundations. Now, can I say, Christians are not opposed to romance, right? Uh, and I normally have to say that particularly for the benefit of any men who are married. And, you know, like... Christians are not opposed to marriage. Song of songs, you know, you can look through all sorts of different parts of the Bible uh, to make that very clear. But here's the thing. We are convinced that God's design in creation and for the good of humanity is male and female. One that includes the possibility of procreation. One that includes a notion of permanence where a couple jointly serve God in this world according to his good purposes. And that this framework, this creational framework, reflects God's profound wisdom and genius. And let me say it also reflects God's love in an absolute way. That is, he creates humanity in this way for human flourishing. It's not restrictive and a punishing moral code, it's actually for our good, our good, our good, our good. God desires our very best at this point. Now, when it comes to 
the, the same-sex plebiscite and what happened as a result of that um, last year, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, you're not bitter about the fact that the, the civil understanding of marriage has been changed, its definition. Uh, it'll probably change again. Uh, there'll probably be lots of changes that will occur in our culture over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, but in the face of that, because we care for people, because we have compassion for others will actually want their very best, which means we will be concerned for what God says and what the Bible says about marriage as God's pattern for human flourishing. So you take someone like Israel Folau, uh, he's been very much in the press. Right? Now, Israel Folau, he, I don't think he's a great theologian. Uh, to be quite honest. And he's a really good rugby player, in other words. It's <laughs> a corresponding thing. Now, but if I can just say, while I would not have expressed things the way in which he did, I take it his essential concern, uh, his essential motivation, was a deep love for other people around him. So I don't think he was clever or accurate in the way in which he went about his communication. But I think the underlying conviction about what the Bible says and his concerns were pretty close to the mark. Okay. Let me move on. Uh, and I realise I'm dealing with these ever so briefly. Really happy to bounce them around with you afterwards if you'd like to. Let me talk about gender fluidity. And I've subtitled this as the, the suspension of identity. Um, I think particularly I wanted to raise this this morning because I know lots of parents are quite concerned about the educational influences that are operating with their kids and the context in which they're growing up. It's been expressed in the Safe Schools program and uh, that campaign, which ostensibly is to deal with bullying but seems to have a much more uh, profound agenda when it comes to uh, education around these sorts of issues. When it comes to this whole question of gender fluidity, there are lots of very highly respected ac academics who are now arguing for the total removal of gender distinctives. Uh, so someone like uh, Judith uh, Laba, she longs for a day uh, when gender differentiation has totally disappeared. Let me read you a quote from her. She said, when, we're no long, when we no longer ask boy or girl in order to start gendering an infant, when the information is as irrelevant as the colour of a child's eyes, only then will men and women be socially interchangeable and really equal. And when that happens, there will no longer be any need for gender at all. Now, there's quite a radical statement, but it's, it's reasonably popular. Uh, many of you will be aware that a number of political parties uh, here in Australia are moving towards policies that would remove gender from legal documents. Tasmania have already proceeded on that basis as an option for people on birth certificates. You know, it's, it's sort of currently happening. Now, I'm not raising those examples because I want to incite fear or some sort of political agenda. I'll get you to sign up afterwards. No, I'm not doing that, all right? And uh, I'm just trying to highlight the vast ideological change that's currently occurring and some of the implications we need to grapple with when it comes to gender thinking. 
uh, that we're, we're subject to. Here are some thoughts. My first thought is, in the face of this particular issue, we do need empathy. Um, that is, people uh, in our fallen world, they struggle for identity. Uh, they're looking for a sense of, of who they are. And therefore, it won't surprise us that people struggle when it comes to the question of their own sexual identity. Okay? We need to uh, have great compassion as we approach this sort of subject. Second thing is, as a Christian community, we need to make sure we don't overreact in ways that are quite unhelpful. Uh, I think churches have been guilty of a lot of cultural stereotyping when it comes to male-female identity. And a lot of that is just not biblical. You know, we feel the content of what it means to be a, a little girl or a little boy based on whether one has a cricket bat or a doll, you know, that sort of thing. There's, that's just... Uh, I'm not saying that there aren't preferences that, you know, that you can see or whatever, but we've got to be very careful about attaching those sort of things to the question of uh, gender when that isn't a biblical thing, actually, type biblical thing to do. Third comment is, what we're seeing here with this debate is a tension between biology and psychology. So if you've been around for decades and decades and decades thinking about these sort of issues, what you'll know is that our world has moved from a position where we thought gender was fairly clear based on biology to a world where biology doesn't matter and actually psychology, the way you think about yourself, is what dominates your self-understanding. You see, that is a huge shift within only a couple of decades in our society, that shift from biology to psychology. But we do need to ask why, uh, our society, why they think that somehow psychology should trump the debate and that biology no longer has any relevance in this debate at all. And I think what we will see uh, is that there will be a movement back uh, from that sort of debate and thinking. So if you've been reading the press these last couple of weeks, been a number of articles where uh, senior medical specialists have been strongly advocating against the introduction of any hormone uh, or gender reassignment surgery for minors and label it actually as, as child abuse uh, to be introducing that at this stage. You see, it's, we've got a society that's swung really big in one direction, uh, but that, that balance and debate is still being held, and we need to be aware that some of that is going on. What I want to say is God has created and he has authority over our lives. We do not, as creatures, have the right to create our own identities independently of him or to recreate our bodies independently of God's design and purpose for us. So as I was saying with uh, John Wyatt and the masterpiece example, the task is to recover our true identity as creatures under the hand of God not to recreate it, but to actually recover 
what we're intended to be to the extent that we're able to in a fallen world. And I do want to say that freedom to choose gender is not freedom at all. Uh, At that point, what we're talking about is actually idolatry. It's taking on the mantle of God to be my own creator. What I want to say is God is good and gender is part of his good creation and good intentions for us as people. Let me uh, just make a final point uh, as we wrap this up, just about clarity and grace and compassion. Uh, Clarity. The Bible is really clear. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 and the whole Bible uh, have great clarity about male and female gender differences. It's founded in creation. It's the basis for marriage. Jesus reinforces this in the New Testament at numbers of points. Just go to Matthew 19 if you're looking uh, for clarity on what Jesus thinks about this particular issue. But here's the thing with Jesus. Even though he has absolute clarity on this issue, he has enormous compassion with people who struggle sinfully with, with the reality. Uh, so I read through the New Testament, I struggle to find Jesus talking with someone who has, or who's experienced, experiencing gender dysphoria who's in a same-sex marriage. Can't find an example of that in the New Testament. But when I go to John chapter 4, I do see Jesus encountering a woman who's struggling with a sense of identity and ignoring God's purposes when it comes to marriage. You'll know the incident. It's Jesus and the Samaritan woman that he meets at the well. And this is a woman who's had multiple husbands and the man that she's now with is not her husband. She's in probably some sort of de facto relationship at that point. And it's interesting that Jesus engages with this woman. Now, Jesus is absolutely theologically crystal clear about what God's intention for this woman is. No question about that. And she's in no doubt about what he thinks on this issue as well at the end of it. But in John John chapter 4, Jesus does not shun her or shame her or denounce her or yell at her. He has enormous compassion. He loves her and he teaches her about how to have freedom and purpose and life itself. So here's the thing. The Bible provides great clarity on these issues for us when it comes to gender and marriage. But can I urge us to make sure that we have great love and compassion uh, for those who are struggling and who are lost and don't have a relationship with God yet? Um, absolute clarity but unfailing love and care for those who have not yet understood the love and grace of the God who has made them. That is the call for us. And that's a tension, isn't it, for us as we live in this world. Uh, But that's what we're called to as disciples. Uh, Feel free to come and grab me afterwards. There's lots of issues I haven't touched on and some I've skated over really quickly. 
But let me pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, you're a gracious God. You, you actually uh, are wonderfully generous towards us. You've created us in your image. Uh, we know that that has embedded into it the notion of uh, gender. Uh, Father, we know that you've given clarity when it comes to marriage and your purposes in this created order. And yet, Father, we are just so aware of our own uh, sinful struggles in many areas of life. And therefore, it doesn't surprise us to see that in our culture, this issue is emerging more and more in the particular form in which it is right now. Father, we pray we'll keep allowing you as the creator God who speaks to us and who loves us and who sent his son into this world for us. We'll allow you to speak into our minds and hearts through your word and convict by your spirit. Uh, But Father, we pray that you'll also give us unfailing compassion and care Uh, for people who don't know your saving and gracious love for them. Uh, Help us to be uh, winsome in this uh, debate and discussion as we engage with it with family and friends. Uh, Help us to be uh, desperately longing uh, to see people encounter the Lord Jesus, one who actually gives them clarity on what it means to be truly human and to be in relationship with you. So, Father, we commend ourselves as a Christian community into your care and keeping, and we do this in Jesus' name. Amen.